John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 817.EX2307, certificate number 34239, The Murder of Herbert Lee. It's almost as if I'm reliving the funeral, and yet my heart is full of joy that not only my son, but all of these other people who gave their lives for such a great cause are getting the recognition that is their due. Kind of a sideways way to get into this, but have you ever watched a TV show where... Uh, yes. So, uh, you have? Mm-hmm. Which one? What was it? Uh, Laverne and Shirley. Was it the first launch of the space shuttle? <laughs> I watched that too. I only watch TV shows when they wheel in a TV in, into the classroom, because yeah. that's when you're the most happy to watch TV. And it Yay! has a, a giant VCR, but you're not going to watch that. You're going to turn it to a UHF station. Uh, have you ever seen a TV show where a celebrity has to play some game for a charity and they have to name the, the nonprofit they're playing for? Are you, are you like aware of this trope? Who are you playing for today? Well, I'm old enough to remember Battle of the Network stars. Did they, were they doing it for the muscular dystrophy or whatever? They always, I think, did it for charity, but those were those shows where there were, you know, 15 truly famous people. Peter Falk's on a motorcycle? (laughs) And playing against Cheryl Teagues in a, like a juggle contest? Um, those were great, but I don't know if I know what you're talking about. Too many celebrities died. That's why they don't do those anymore. Yeah. Charo died several times. Yeah. That, that's, that's from, where from we ju- lost. Juggling uh, torches. <laughs> Herb Alpert weirdly died. <laughs> RIP Herb Alpert <laughs> struck by a steamroller driven by Peter Falk. Uh, no, I, on game shows, you know, when they have the celebrities, you know, they don't want the idea that the celebrity is playing for themselves. Is the celebrity playing against normals? Sometimes a celebrity is a partner, but typically this is like a special week where like, uh, you know, primetime stars are playing Family Feud or, oh. uh, you know, Was- Beltway types are playing Jeopardy. But they're not just playing against like somebody that just drew the, like the, their number came up. No, that, Jeopardy would, this no that would be funny. That would be funny. Yeah, I think Jeopardy would actually be better if it was always just contest winners. It's just a sweepstakes. <laughs> oh, look, Carol from, from uh, Knoxville. <laughs> You're on Jeopardy. Good luck. Uh and this, at one point, I became the first. This happened to me, and I got the behind-the-scenes look of of uh, becoming the person who has to say to the game show host, "Yeah, I'm here for, uh, you know, for UNICEF or whatever." And what were you there for? Well, that was the problem. Oh. It's like a real existential crisis sure, to decide sure, sure. what your what your charity is. Well, because, because this is it, right? You're going to be remembered forever. You get one shot. I mean, it's all the nightmare of ha- of picking charities in your real life, which is. 
uh, you know, well, there's so many good causes and I'm, I mean, lately it's really like, what am I angriest about today? Is it Dobbs? Is it the ocean levels rising? Is it cops shooting black kids? And it, it used to be a, uh, a question of what, which charity spends the least amount of money on overhead? Do you remember that phase? Yeah. Well, there's some level of that where you can still go online and find all these charity rankers that are like, this place, this place doesn't overpay its executives. It yeah. must be good. Yeah, right. Exactly. There was something I, my mom used to give to the Red Cross every year. And then one time she saw an article where they don't it need it. Seemed, well, it seemed like they were 70% Bloated. of the money was going to keeping the offices open or something. And she, she was, she felt betrayed. They just, the Red Cross just takes your blood. They just take that money and they're just, waste it. They're just drinking that blood probably. No, I'm sure the Red Cross is great. But yes, I, I remember that same news cycle. It seemed like it was one of those my 538 era of what if data quants tell you you're doing everything wrong, including right. giving blood wrong. Right. Uh, yeah, I remember that. So there's some level of that, like, oh, you want somebody, you know, a really efficient charity. And also, if you're going to announce their name on primetime, maybe don't do the Red Cross because they don't need the visibility. Right. Um, but also, don't do a charity that two years later turns out to, to be, be a like a, yeah, a scam or a front or something bad. Right. Uh, and... One thing it, I had not considered was that the television show does not want you to pick anything that interesting. Like their nightmare is somebody getting up and saying, I'm, I'm giving my money to act up. I'm here for the National Right to Life <laughs> Foundation or uh, Abortion Access Fund. Like, you know, it doesn't right. even matter which side it is. Right. And so the show sent me over a list of approved <laughs> charities and it was the most, like they sounded made up. The Ocean Project, yeah. the nature people, it sounded yeah. like the fake... Charity from Seinfeld. Wheat bran. I'm playing for the human fund. It really was stuff like that. Like nobody's against, it was like toys for tots or yeah, um, yeah, yeah. national big brothers, big sisters. Could you do a veterans organization? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Wounded warriors. That's the kind of thing the network is hoping. Cause you know, then the whole audience is like, I hope he wins for those wounded warriors. And so what, so you looked it up and down and you were like, mm, not into veterans, not into the ocean, not no, into the forest. They were all equally good, but yeah. they just seemed like they were problem. You know, they were right. just chosen to be non charities. And I would have chosen the earth people. Or whatever. <laughs> what, what can you say about that? I loved when they did the Super Bowl halftime show in 1971. I love the earth. People. <laughs> no compromise in defense of mother earth. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I picked uh, what's worse than Greenpeace. What's some total monkey wrench? Uh, yeah, that's what it would be. Uh, eco charity. Oh, I forget what the, that was called. Uh, yeah, Earth First. I was a card carrying member for a long time. And I'm playing for Earth First, Pat Sajak. <laughs> Pat walks off. <laughs> uh, and so after a week of just putting them off and not replying to emails, I finally I remembered I had been to a, a, a like a conference where. A man named Brian Stevenson had spoken, mm. and I had. Uh, it was about the same time that Michael B. Jordan had played him in the movie. He was like a lawyer who returned to his southern roots to start this new kind of shoestring operation to help uh, first guys on death row who could not get representation. Right. And his organization has since you know gone from strength to strength. Now they're the Equal Justice Initiative, where they've kind of got a broader mandate to address all these structural and, and largely racial inequities in the, um, you know, mostly in the criminal justice system and, in, in, you know, mass incarceration and people who are locked up unjustly because they couldn't get a, you know, because their state lawyer sucked and their public defender sucked. And the state patrol 
didn't show all the evidence. Yeah, weirdly, or or showed evidence that uh, they had brought from home. It's fun how the state patrol will do that sometimes. Depending some on, state patrol, depending on the defendant. not all state patrols no, can. A few a few bad apples. Mm-hmm. That's what I hear. Uh, but anyway, you know, he it was just a, a remarkably inspirational speech that kind of told the history of race in America with our you know, for-profit criminal justice, you know, the incarceration system we have today, the prison system we have today, just kind of as a natural line going back to Jim Crow, lynching, you know, all, you know, all the way back through history. Wait a minute. The EJI was not on the network's list of approved gentle uh, uh, charities, surely. Uh, it was not, but you didn't have to pick from the list. It was like, hey, we, you haven't gotten oh. back to us, so this will help. Good. Here, here okay. are the, here are our top 15. What about, uh, you know, uh, UNICEF Easter fund or whatever. So, so you, so you'd just seen him speak and you were inspired. Yes. Uh, and one thing I didn't realize, I, I talked to him briefly after, cause we wound up at the same table with him at this thing. And one thing I didn't realize from talking to him is that, you know, his organization has now, now runs this kind of massive museum civil rights memorial complex in montgomery alabama where they're headquartered and montgomery is now like i love that you say montgomery sorry (laughs) what should i say no no no. i think that's probably right montgomery is probably what well i don't want to sound it like some fading southern bell either is that problematic (laughs) here in montgomery as it as it was i have no we're gonna get letters of course because we have lots of alabama listeners and they'll explain how to pronounce it. It's like when maybe, you know, we how probably t- don't pronounce the T. Yeah, Mon- Montgomery. That's what I was going to say. You know how Toronto gets mad if you don't say Toronto? Yeah, but that, but apparently that's not right either. What? Apparently there's a, there, you're not supposed to say the, the first O either. Toronto. I don't say either of the T's. Tr- I just say Arano. Arano. Maybe that's it. Cause you know, I can't remember which T it is you're supposed to elide. So I just it's, get rid of them all. It's T apostrophe R A N O. Aren't Canadians supposed to be like ahead of us, advanced, you know, yeah. more, more connected to precise European speech? No, no, no. They're ahead of us in the sense that they're eliminating <laughs> all we, unnecessary letters. We still have 26 letters like chumps on this side of the border. Uh, but they can't get rid of Q because Quebec would complain. We're trying to get rid of Q, though. Quebec would quibble. It'd be Ebec. It would be Ebec. Yeah, that's right. So Montgomery, however you say it, uh-huh. is now like a real... Uh, you know, it's maybe the most important stop on the civil rights tourism trail. You know, there's there's stuff to see, and, and white and black travelers alike stop to see. And as he described this museum, his National Memorial for Peace and Justice that he started, it sounded less like a civil rights um, monument and much more like the the narrative he had he had given in his after dinner speech, which I'm sure is the practiced thing he often gives to to moneyed white audiences to. Um, make them reach for their checkbooks and it totally worked mm-hmm. in my case. And I'm sure many of the other, many of the other uh, guilty liberals in the room are reaching for their checkbooks so fast. They're like, <laughs> I'm one of the good checkbook. ones. I'm one of the good ones. It's yeah. It's, it's bouncing out of their hands yeah. like a cartoon. Character. Da, 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 da. My, me, me, me. Uh, so the museum is actually, you know, it's centered around, you know, not just here's what happened during the six years. This was on the nightly news with Walter Cronkite, but it's really more like, Let's start with the Northwest. You know, let's start with the slave trade. Let's. Um, there's a room that has monuments to you know massive kind of steel art installation representing 
every county in the U.S. that had a lynching. Oh, so this is like a 1619 exactly uh, style like right. let's go back to first but then but then all the way through like here's right. you know here's the structural reasons for these problems that still plague us today have you been to alabama no we've i think we've discussed this on the show and oh. it's me hopping across the border at columbus georgia and just ne- to try and get the, and never having seen anything good n- knock it off your list of states right. that you visited but he really you know he was talking and all the people at the table are like oh we must go honey we must go and i was like we should really go. so i don't know when i'm going to make it to this museum but it sounds great well a couple of years ago i was sitting up here in my ivory tower in in seattle trying to think of what to do next you know you know how that feels and i said you know i'm just gonna go i've never i've been across alabama a a bunch of times i've played in montgomery but i didn't know i I didn't understand uh uh, alabama because i think when you drive across it you know there's a lot of undergrowth you can't really see through the trees. All the kudzus. Yeah, you're just on the road and you look here, you look there, you don't get a sense of it. So I flew down to Nashville, I rented a car, and I spent two weeks just driving around Alabama, just trying to just trying to see what there was to see. Oh yeah, you went to Muscle Shoals. I did. You told me this. I went to Muscle Shoals, I went uh I went down to um I went to the Edmund Pettus Bridge and walked across it. So you've seen the some of the civil rights trail there. A little bit, yeah. And and um and it was, it, you know, coming from the the Northwest, it was, uh, I, I felt like it was something everybody should do. You know, go go to the state that they know the least, rent a car, and just drive around and see what there was to see. I went to, to Mobile and thought it was one of the one of the great American towns. Well, this is when we talked about this. We did the show about whatever that inversion uh, is that makes all the... Yeah, all the crawdads the, come to the surface. Right. I yeah. think that's what it was called, the inversion <laughs> that makes the crawdads come to the surface. So Mobile, you know, it's like a little New Orleans. But little. It has a Mardi Gras, right? Yeah, the first Mardi the first Mardi Gras in America. Anyway, so yeah, I, uh, Montgomery is a is is a fascinating place. You know, it's like a majority black city in the United States, and there aren't that many of them. Well, that very much plays into this. There were more of them before the Great Migration. Right. You know, reading about this particular story today really kind of reminded me that the, you know, the wave of terror and violence that was Jim Crow and the segregation South was an apartheid state. You know, it was a case where in many in many counties and, and municipalities, like a majority black population would have controlled the political and legal system had they been allowed to vote, serve on juries, run for office. So, you know, the the fact that, you know, it wasn't just kind of a vague sense of racial animus that led to clans organizing. It was specifically a top-down uh, and very successful attempt to keep a white minority in power in right. a lot of these places. Birmingham and Jackson and places like that would have been, it would have been a, a uh, what would you call it? Like, yeah, a black nation. Yeah, I mean, it, kind of what with the threat of reconstruction, where suddenly these states were being represented by black senators and, and state representatives, and you know the the white interests there sat back and said, "Oh no, what like, a different eighteen eighties that would have been! Wouldn't that have been a? I mean, that would have been an exciting time." If uh, wait, what do you picture here? Lincoln lives, or well, just no? If every if if forty acres and a mule had been right. had been honored, right? I mean, think about think about that. What what a what a 
what a different United States uh, this this would be. I feel like I'm not totally ignorant about the civil rights movement, but I think my view has just naturally been filtered through PBS documentaries. You know, whatever the whatever the white Gen X memory of the civil rights area is. You know, coming up in a, t- a time when the media had already decided, oh, this was always clearly morally right, and we finally got it right. Good news. Good news, kids. Um, everybody's on the right side now, which it turned out was completely illusory. But what, what was interesting in the late eighties was that was, uh, you know, that the black power movement that came out of sort of that, the feeling the Spike that, Lee era. Yeah. That all through the seventies, the civil rights movement had been undermined by, uh, the FBI and the introduction of crack cocaine and a lot of conspiracies around it but also a real feeling that that too was a missed opportunity. You know, the, the passage of the civil rights act and the rise of the black power movement again, threatened powers that be and were undermined the same way that the CIA was undermining central American governments. I mean, we're the right age to remember the controversy over even Martin Luther King Jr. Day becoming a national holiday. I'm not, I'm not going to Arizona and by the time I get there. That's a, that's a different story. Something I don't think Glenn Campbell was <laughs> particularly concerned about national holidays. But yeah, I mean, today, this idea that, well, you know, where even Republican senators will have to pretend that they admire Dr. King because now he's the secular saint. That was not true in the 80s. No. I mean, it was certainly not true in his lifetime when if you polled Americans, I don't know, 20% of white Americans said they agreed with Dr. King. And so when you look at the, you know, the, the, Stevenson's monument to these 4,400 lynchings, and I'm sure thousands more that are still under the radar, or also in Montgomery, the Mile Inn designed civil rights memorial that has 47 martyrs on it, you know, stretching from 1955, kind of the first voter registration violence down to the last name is April 4th, 1968. It's Dr. King shot in Memphis. You know, these are the martyrs on the thing, but you, you realize that these are names you don't know, even though there's only... 47 and surely there were you know thousands of victims of violence at the time a lot of these were names i didn't know and one of the most interesting ones to me as i was reading through this list was a guy named herbert lee uh you know one of there's interesting names on the civil rights memorial you know most of them just kind of ground roots organizers some of them you know uh, uh, some white people not just the the students you expect the intellectuals who drove down, but just Southerners who had their own quixotic campaigns for equality, whose neighbors hated them or French, you know, overseas journalists who got shot by a spare round at James Meredith protest or, or something. Um, the one in particular, this, uh, and, and presumably Medgar Evers and Emmett yeah, Till and, and the big names, but you realize how few of the big names, you know, like, Oh yeah, Medgar Evers and Emmett Till. And then you're like, uh, and then those two other guys, those Freedom Rider guys with Till and, uh, right. you know, like our, our view of the civil rights movement today is not, and when I say our, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm specifically speaking for me, kind of a middle-aged, like, middle-aged white guy who's... Mainstream American media-generated yeah. documentary film version of history. And how maybe different that would have felt from life on the ground for people who really were living through this reign of violence in an apartheid state and maybe you know and this is naive of me to kind of have an epiphany 
about this because I'm sure many black people in America feel like they're still living in that kind of war zone. Um, but Herbert Lee's case was interesting to me because, first of all, he was killed in broad daylight by a Mississippi state representative, by like a member of the state house. <laughs> what? Right? Like, how have we not heard? How have we not heard of this case? Mm-hmm. And then second, Lee and the state representative, one E.H. Hurst, were childhood friends. Oh, my God. Who had, who had grown up together and played together in the setting of our story, uh, Amet County, Mississippi. Now, the... You know, our, our kind of top level down, you know, uh, national correspondent on the street, newsreel view of the civil rights movement, you know, privileges a certain, a certain view. You know, maybe the ministers are very prominent. And that was, a, you know, the civil rights movement was a confluence of lots of different interests. Certainly you had the, the, the moral voice of the movement, these religious speech makers who from their pulpits would invoke Jesus and Gandhi and, you know, preach nonviolence. Um, and this was pre Malcolm X and Nation of Islam, uh, like right? I mean, radicalism. This is, this is as this as the movement begins in the 1950s, right? Um, but you also had, as we've mentioned on the show before, the black servicemen coming home suddenly. Right. You know, in Mississippi alone, ninety thousand African American men come home expecting the kind of autonomy they had in in the war, in the service, and the you know, the status, the hero, status of heroes that they would deserve at home only to be, you know, sorely disappointed. And then you had what you might call the middle class interest, the NAACP, these well-moneyed organizations that were in the courts trying to get the decisions to go their way and were well-funded by Northern white liberals as well as, you know, middle-class blacks all over the country. But I mean, the fourth group was the people who were actually there, the ground level organizers. Somebody had to get a bunch of neighbors together and say, look, this is scary. And I know the Klan meets half a mile that way on Thursday night, but we're going to try to register to vote in the fall or, you know, who has a car who can drive people to the polls or, you know, just the local scary stuff that had to happen. And was there a secular organization that was, or were all of these like ad hoc in the community? There's going to be, Six of us are going to invent a way. There were organizations. I mean, our story today is going to uh, involve SNCC, the uh, Go on. SNCC, the Student Nonviolent oh, Coordinating, Coordinating Committee, Committee yeah. I believe. Um, I've never heard it called SNCC before. I think it's, you know, usually in the, you know, if they wheel in the TV to show you the PBS documentaries, I think people, I think the members at the time called it SNCC. Huh. And so this was kind of top level, a group that would send down a field secretary to a, to a county and say, you know, who are the influential local leaders? How can we help? You know, what do you need? Um, and that included Amet County in southwestern Mississippi. It's on the Louisiana border in the kind of the, 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 the brim or the lip where Mississippi overlaps. It's the Delta. Eastern Louisiana. Or beginning to be it's the, in the Delta. Delta. Yeah, it's cotton country. Um, although after the depression, the dust bowl, bull weevils and so forth. I think they're by the time our story takes place, there's also a lot of logging and dairy farming going on there. Uh, it was a majority black County until the great migration of the thirties started to hollow it out. And even though I didn't know the name, uh, journalists who covered it during the civil rights era referred to it as the ninth circle of hell. Mm. It was not an easy place 
to be black if there you know was such a place in Mississippi at the time. And in particular, it was uh, an extremely dangerous place to try to organize for your human rights as a black person in the, in the 1950s and 60s. There is still an extremely heavy vibe in that part of the country. Driving through there, you know, off the main road, you just get a real heavy duty vibe. Sense of history? Well, like, And continuing just, attitudes? Yeah, it just feels like, I don't know, like, you know, there are places in America where you you don't go up a unmarked road and it just feels, it just, I don't know, there, there are little sections of the country that just feel like, well, the vibe here sure changed. But, I, have a, I have an Asian American friend who, you know, just loves Southern food and had, was kind of following uh, the recommendations of the internet the last time he was in the South to all these kind of little off the beaten path. Where the crawdads bar- come bar- up in the tide. Barbecue joints. And he was surprised at the vibe, how unwelcome he felt in any town whose population was under, you know, a certain line. Yeah. Like the 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 old South kind of came to life for him in a in a way it had not before, in the form of a feeling of unwelcome and even menace. Yeah, and I and I felt it too. So yeah, it's one of those things where I could see he would say like, "Whoa, Asians aren't welcome around here," but I also down he- there feel like, hmm. I'm sure it, it doesn't help to not be white, but yeah, you're, right. you're saying any outsider might might get a, a, a little taste. I did feel that way. And we, we talk about the Great Migration, but to our overseas listeners, we should explain that that, well, you explain what the Great Migration was. Oh, just, uh, it's true. If we're talking to people a, a thousand years hence, there have been many migrations. This was in particular, um, you know, many rural blacks families from the South headed to the what is what are now the rest rust belt cities of the north for these new industrial jobs cleveland detroit buffalo building cars and uh, uh chicago in a big way and i don't know what else were they building besides cars uh car parts <laughs> parts for cars uh, other tires uh, yeah that's right other cars uh a lot of cars had to be built um it was a post-war economic it was boom, the style of the time and uh america found an underclass well moved them around i guess on September 26, 1961, a short item appears in the Macomb Enterprise Journal from Macomb's the county seat, I think, of neighboring Pike County, so just, you know, not far from Amet County, that basically says a Negro man has been shot in self-defense while attacking local first citizen E.H. Hurst. Um, a tiny, it was on the front page of the paper, apparently, but a very small item. And a small paper. That's a very small paper. Although, you know, its circulation at the time is probably the same as the Denver Post or something today, <laughs> given everything that has happened. Not to say that the paper itself was small, but that it had a small The paper was a normal size, yeah. such that you could read Dick Tracy mm-hmm. um, in a legible size. Uh, but, uh, you know, from this little squib, squib item, you would have no sense. It just seemed like some random bum had attacked, uh, you know, a well-liked local uh, uh, potentate, not potentate, but... Uh, legislator. Legislator, and uh, had been killed in the attempt, which was probably lucky because that means our man, uh, Representative Hurst, had gotten off okay. Um, you would get no sense of who Herbert Lee was. The story was not from the point of view of the victim. He was actually a successful local farmer, um, you know, with a prosperous farm, married with nine kids. Hmm. Um, 
He was well known in the African American community of uh, of Amet County where he lived um, because he was organizing for voting rights at the oh. time. Uh, not mentioned in the story. He was an activist, he or was, at least a local. Right. I mean, yeah. I guess you know we would call him an activist. You, you know, the the activist in the story is maybe Robert Moses, not. Not that Robert Moses, mm. different guy, field secretary for SNCC, very different approach to race in America, <laughs> who had actually been down in Amet County the week before, sent down from, I think he was, uh, I think he was Harlem based, sent down to, uh, to see what the situation was there and had brought with him somebody from the, uh, let's see, Kennedy Justice Department. Yeah, this 1961, the Kennedy Justice Department, Bobby Kennedy's Justice Department, newly interested in voting rights in the South and protecting, protecting black citizens from violence. Although, you know, there were still years to go. Uh, and they had met with a local man who was organizing a voter registration drive, one EW Steptoe and Steptoe had said, I think Steptoe had called them down here to say, there's going to be trouble. Nobody here likes that. We're trying to get black people out to the polls. Um, here's a list of people who like might get killed. And Herbert Lee was on that list. Again, not mentioned in the paper about how, you know, he was targeted, just seemingly some bum had, uh, had gone after a state representative. The paper also didn't mention that, as I've said, Herbert Lee had grown up on a neighboring farm from Eugene Hunter Hearst, the the future representative Hearst. They had played together as boys. Um, that's a close relationship that had continued into adulthood when Hearst actually had helped Lee, uh, secure his farm, you know, the note to his farm. Uh, but that had all changed when people started to talk about how Lee was one of the local, um, black farmers who was starting to get, you know, from their view uppity. He had started to talk to these Northern boys and these fancy lawyers. And Hearst felt like, why are you betraying our local culture? Right. You know, I, I thought you were one of the good ones by which they would have meant, The ones who don't make trouble and... Like things the way they are. Yeah, don't complain that all their neighbors are the grand cyclops or the grand wizard of the local chapter of the KKK. What what had happened the day before, and there's a dozen witnesses to this killing that took place in broad daylight, so there's some general agreement on the facts. Herbert Lee pulled up in his truck. Now, Herbert Lee owned a car, which made him extremely valuable to the organizing movement in... Amit County. He was a stubborn man who wasn't going to let, you know, the sneers or the the skeptical looks of his white neighbors stop him from doing what he thought was right. And he owned a car, so he could drive people into town to try to sign them up to register and then later to vote. That's a valuable asset. Not a lot of um, not a lot of the black farmers in the area owned their own cars or trucks. I mean, it's uh, same with me. I'm a stubborn man. Who and you own a truck, and I own a truck, and I and I won't let my neighbors tell me what to do. So I can relate. I, I think the resemblances might end there oh, okay. because when because you, you do vote, yeah, but nobody's threatening the lives of your family when you do. No, that's true. We have mail-in voting here in Washington, which is great. Yeah. Uh, they did not in Mississippi right. in 1961 <laughs> or now, right? <laughs> um, so he pulls up to the Westbrook Cotton Gin with uh, a truck load full of bales of cotton to gin. Uh, whatever that means. He's got the raw cotton that has been picked on his farm and the cotton gin processes it and what picks out the seeds and whatnot and yeah. 
makes it something you can sell. This it is gins it up. My vague memories of Eli Whitney from AP U.S. History. Uh, as, as he gets there, a truck pulls up behind him without, I think, any... The accounts vary on this that I've read, but uh, most of the accounts seem clear that this truck does not have any cotton, and yet here's Representative E.H. Hurst, a prosperous local farmer, pulling up right behind Lee. The suggestion may be that he knew where he was going and has been following him there. Boxed him in. Walks up to the cab of Lee's truck, and what witnesses describe as a discussion soon turned into an argument. Uh, The account that later comes out at the inquest is that Hearst wanted a debt repay, that he said there were $500 that Lee owed him, probably related to the purchase of the farm, that had never been repaid. And Lee truculently refuses and says he's never going to pay. And when Hearst presses the issue, uh, it is Lee who becomes violent and unpredictable. He has a tire iron, uh, steps out of his car. At some point, he walks. He gets out of the cab of his truck, walks around the front of his car to Hearst on the other side. And Hearst has walked over to this truck, a man of peace, but he has a revolver in his waistband. As you do. State representative. Um, he says it's because of a, a recent conflict with a neighbor. He's led, he's led him to carry a revolver any, uh, everywhere. And the fact that Lee, Herbert Lee is so belligerent and now has a tire iron um, causes Hearst to, to put up his left hand to ward off a blow from the tire iron, at the same time taking the revolver out of his pants with his right hand, hitting Lee on the head twice with it. The second time he hits him with the revolver, it goes off in his account, killing Lee. He, like, he, so he doesn't even mean to pull the trigger on this guy, his childhood friend. He was just using the gun as a he defensive was just cl- clubbing, club. Clubbing him with it, and somehow the gun went off, and, and a bullet entered uh, Herbert Lee through the, I believe, left temple killing him. He uh, falls down on the street dead where he will lie for hours for the most of the day mm-hmm. as is often a, kind of a telling detail in stories of this kind from the Jim Crow era, the, the body of a black man just lying in the street. Uh, oh, and some stories today, actually, now that I think about it, there are, as I've said, a dozen witnesses to this. There's people from inside the Inside the gym, there's people on the street. Three guys are building a shack across the way. There's about a dozen people there. Most are white, but a few are black. Uh, A doctor, somebody from the local coroner's office shows up and declares Lee dead on the scene. And then the most powerful man in the county, you know, who represents the county and the state representative in the state legislature is standing there with the revolver that fired the bullet that killed the man in the street. So a coroner's inquest is held very hastily within a day. I think it's maybe the next day an inquest is held. Six, six people, six jurors are gathered and local witnesses tell what happens. And they all tell the story involving a dispute. Well, m- many of them tell the story that we've just heard, the dispute over the money, the tire iron. It turns out that I think... Uh, in the 21st century, around 2006, the the Bush and then Obama era White Houses or department, you know, the uh, the Department of Justice under the Bush and Obama administrations started a uh, an FBI kind of civil rights cold case project. Hmm. 
where they would look at a lot of these killings. I mean, you'd think this would have been national news. Like a, a Mississippi state senator just shoots a guy in broad daylight on the street? Nope. Tiny little paragraph in the paper because the victim's black. So when the FBI finally started looking into this uh, for the second time in, in, the, in around 2000, 2010, I think, uh, a lot of the witnesses who were still around or, you know, and looking at the transcript of the, of the coroner's inquest, it turns out that many people did not, many people who testified that day did not remember the tire iron. And when it finally came up, they had to go back to the scene. This must've been later the same day because they had to go back to the scene where the body's still on the street. And at that point, a tire iron is indeed discovered hmm. with the body <laughs> after it's been mentioned in the inquest, a tire iron appears, luckily. And is this all written down in, in the, the, the notes of the inquest? Yes, there are records. And I went through the 2010 letter uh, from the FBI's Cold Case Project. The names are all redacted, with the exception of one witness who we'll meet in a moment. So it's a little hard to follow who's who. But you can see all 12 people, what they said when they, on the day, what they said the next day in the inquest, what they said later. Um, because the stories did change um one of the black witnesses who testified that this was the, the official story had in fact happened that it was self-defense was a man named lewis allen and even though he told the whole story the argument over the money the self-defense because of the tire iron uh he later told the fbi he went to jackson and told an fbi office that he had been pressured on that day to tell the story that the other three white witnesses had agreed to tell um, because it was going to be trouble for him if he didn't. He told the FBI in Jackson that he was willing to offer new testimony against Hearst, who had gotten away scot-free. You know, the within you know the jury, the, the all-white coroner's jury had immediately agreed that this was self-defense. self-defense, and therefore the story ends here and should not blot the name of a great man like Eugene Hunter Hearst. Um, Allen said, you know, if you can guarantee my safety i'd be happy to testify as to what actually happened you know they were not arguing over money there was no debt everybody in the county knew that hearst uh had been friends with lee and had really turned on him once um you know the african-american population of amit county had started voting or started trying to register to vote organizing voter registration drives um everybody knew that Lee was in trouble. And Lewis Allen had been one of the, uh, had been in these meetings as well. You know, he'd been sitting in all the same farmhouses talking about how to get more um, black names on the, on the voter registry. And the FBI said, yeah, we can't guarantee your safety. You know, you're, you should testify as to the truth, but you know, what are we going to do? And Allen, in fact, decided not to testify because Makes sense. His life would not have been worth a plug nickel. And in fact, the but the ending of his story is actually particularly sad because after Hearst was found not guilty and he decided, or you know, was there was not even a trial, uh, he Allen decided not to say anything. The word did get around that he had gone to Jackson, that he had, you know, a- apparently everybody knew what had very likely happened and nobody cared. Right. And everybody just wanted the story to stay the little the little single paragraph in the paper that it had been well they cared enough to not want it to be 
investigated. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they knew as long as, you know, what happens in Amit County stays in Amit County, we're fine. You know, if, if Bobby Kennedy's goons start looking into this, you know, well, that could be trouble. Now, what's happening in the civil rights movement at this time? Uh, other places. Well, 1961 is, I mean, th- th- this is all a pretty new movement. The, the, the very first Woolworths sit-in in North Carolina was in early 1960, so just a year and a half ago. You know, if you think about the things that happened to us a year and a half ago, it just seems like a blink. So this was all happening very quickly. This was like Freedom Riders. Yeah, the, the first Freedom Riders came down in 1961, so just a few months before um, the first, you know, uh, Dr. King is, is joining sit-ins and start, you know, starting to, um, there's starting to be protests at whites only businesses, um, you know, to tie this into things we already know, Medgar Evers, uh, is, I believe one of the, is present at Herbert Lee's funeral, I believe is one of his pallbearers. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and is you know he has a year and a half left to live. He was at the time again one of these local Mississippi black citizens who was you know very involved in registering locals to vote. You know, sixty two is the protests over James Meredith after the Supreme Court. You know, the, the first Supreme Court decisions are starting to come down. That you know the federal because of interstate commerce, the federal government has broad powers to strike down segregation laws. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's crazy how much of this happens within a period of just a few years. I mean, from that, from that Woolworths counter to, or, to, um, you know, letter from a Birmingham jail is like, uh, two years, you know, less than the length of the COVID pandemic to, to us, um, almost no time at all. It was, it was a real, it was a real sudden sea change. And uh, in the middle of it, in Amit County, Mississippi, a state legislator got away with killing a man in cold blood in front of a town full of witnesses in broad daylight, you know, pretty much high noon. And it worked. It pretty much ended the voter registration drive in Amit County. Whoa. Like, this is a tactic that that local clan groups and, and other white interests per- perpetrated because it worked. Um, they could keep the voting registers all white, even with a Kennedy in the white house and a Kennedy in the justice department, right. as long as they, you know, showed at the local grassroots level that they still had the power through a reign of violence and terror. And Lewis Allen, the man who had, who knew what really happened and had thought about telling the feds, uh, he continued to be uh, harassed. He got so much trouble at home that he was planning on heading north. And the day that he had his truck packed to go, he was killed outside his house. He is one of the, he and Herbert Lee are both found on the, um, on the Civil Rights Memorial in Montgomery today. Um, it, Alan's murder was never mentioned, or was never investigated until the 1990s. And in fact, so much of what we're discussing today, just like all these other grassroots act of violence in the 1960s South, 
a lot of this is just stuff that was exhumed by, you know, academics or or cold case researchers. During the Mississippi burning era of right. looking back. Right. When, you know, when Byron Della Beckwith was actually found guilty of, uh, of Evers' murder, and maybe somebody involved in the Till killings actually faced trial. I can't remember. Um, but at the time, no coverage at all. Like a, a conspiracy of silence kept any word of this from spreading, you know, any more than 10 miles away from the cotton gin where it happened. The New York Times said God is dead, but they didn't say, let's look into this at the time. Well, it's just a really interesting contrast between what everybody else in America was seeing all the, uh, on the news, you know, kind of seeing it in kind of an abstract, high-level way. You know, what will the court decision be? You know, just regular American dads holding a beer and stroking their chin and saying, well, I don't know about this Dr. King, you know, where the conversation would be, how much of an agitator or a communist is, is he or... Or will you say, well, he means well, or, well, of course I'm for civil rights, but... Yeah, this was the go-slow era, right? Like, let's not rock the boat. Right. You know, we're not ready for this. Like, you know, we're going to have cities burning if we actually go with what these people want. Uh, A common critique today. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of in the go-slow era today on on many issues, or even the go-backwards era. Um, but the, just the contrast between that and what was happening on the ground where literally dozens of people that even today you and I have never heard of were just getting killed in cold blood and therefore successfully chilling regional civil rights for a generation. Right. Um, you know, that just must have been a very different experience than how the country was seeing the civil rights movement. Yeah, although the, 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 there, there must have... All of it must have contributed to a kind of tipping point, right? There, within the within the black movement and and its white allies, there had to there had to have been an awareness, a general awareness that gradually turned into the much more vocal and militant mid '60s civil rights movement that started to step away from the Gandhi like um, nonviolence. And move into a more sort of active fight. I assume it was cases like the Herbert. I mean, the thing about the Herbert Lee case is it's insane, and we've never heard of it. Nobody's ever heard of it. Um, I mean, not nobody, but it's it's a footnote. Whereas, uh, you know, the brave thing that Emmett Till's family did was make sure that he was, you know, laid to rest in an open. You know, he, he was uh, what an open casket at yeah. the funeral at the services. Look what they did to my boy. Right. I think a glass, I think a glass topped coffin actually specifically made for that purpose, just so America could not look away. And so finally, one of these stories of brutality bubbled up high enough that it started to change minds. Right. Um, for the only reason that you couldn't look away, right? I, I mean, it all seems so clear in hindsight that the that not just the moral, the factual truth, but the moral truth was so obvious. And then you look at polling from the time, and it to those people it didn't seem obvious at all. Yeah, there was that. There was that. Um, the normalization of of the the idea that if a black person attacked a white person, there it was not two equal human beings in a dispute. But right. the, you know, even if the dispute was was 
was not clearly um even even if it, if there wasn't one person who was clearly the aggressor the, still the black person was at a disadvantage and that that's and we see it today too but but it's interesting that he he made a kind of trump like defense i if i did shoot him it was in self defense but i didn't even shoot him it was an accident right all the all the little hedges yeah um, as part of that cold case project that the FBI had going in the uh, early 2000s, um, somebody was assigned the murder of Herbert Lee and looked into the case. And the, you know, the, the, after, after kind of going through all the testimony and pointing out all the contradictions and problems and kind of implying what likely happened, the memo ends by saying, this is not a prosecutable violation, uh, specifically because the perpetrator is dead. Um, E.H. Hurst had died in 1990. Um, so somebody was just crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's here. But the, the result of the, of the memo is to say that, um, well, we can't prosecute this because the man we would prosecute has been dead for almost 20 years. Right. Um, but it's good, that it's, it's good that it's in the record, I guess, you know, just as a pro forma, even if it was just a pro forma thing. Um, because there's no statute of limitations on murder. Except if you die. Yes, that always ends the statute of limitations. Westbrook Cotton Gin is still there. It's the last surviving cotton gin in Amit County and is on the National Register of Historic Places. Is there a memorial? I don't believe so. I don't believe that its status on the National Register of Historic Places has anything to do with the Herbert Lee murder, oh. which is it's just the tragedy of the whole thing, that this kind of thing was so commonplace that a... Uh, a state representative shooting his childhood friend over, um, you know, what he saw as black agitation uh, was such a common thing that nobody batted an eyelash and everybody stayed quiet for 50 years. It's what makes the 1619 project so, so like crucial, right? The, the, just the introduction of the other side of the story into the narrative. And it's so funny that it's, controversial you you see people get so agitated about it when it's just it's just a history project and it's just a history project that is filling in a lot of the gaps in the record and the missing um the missing parts of the story that we that we now have archaeological evidence for that that people are have done all this tremendous archival research piecing together stories that are that are necessarily hard to piece together but not any harder to piece together than the than the Norman conquest. Yeah, one of the many things we've lost in our time is the sense that there would be some proportionality between outrage and the subject of the outrage. And that's just not true anymore. You know, the non-controversial things will register all outrage will be at 11. And right. non-controversial things will receive that 11-level outrage if the right talking heads tell everyone to be outraged. It has no connection to the actual merits of the argument or, uh, or you know, as you say, the, you know, the, the morality of the, the sensibility of the issue at all. Yeah, right. It's not, it's not necessarily political in the sense of it having a—, a um an ideology. Yeah, it's not ideological. It's it's just like here's here is the here's this 
the story. Like, it turns out all the things we thought were non-political actually are political. Yeah. If your politics is, to, I I want to troll the other guy, right, or to de- to deny history, right, which yeah. is a weird stance. I thought this was, you know, omnibus has not really dipped into the civil rights movement for the obvious reason that we're, I mean, maybe not obvious, but we're. I don't know, maybe not the right storytellers for the era. Um, but like, this seemed so perfect, like a, like a, an amazing story lost, not by coincidence, but by conspiracy, um, memory hold for no reason. It's a famous, uh, a famous adage about the civil war that it was brother against brother. I, I had a AP history teacher in high school who, had long passed the point that he was a effective educator and was just an old uh an old nut that had tenure and he used to say it was brother against brother he would he said, i don't know we didn't study the civil war all year but he said it like 50 times in the course of a year did you and, always write it down in your notes yeah until, until it became brother. his catchphrase but it's it's absolutely true i mean even now qAnon uh, is brother against brother, and this incident you're you're describing was it's, in a way brother yeah, against it's brother. It's funny about the small scale of it. You know, you think about these cases of you know faceless guys dragging people out of cars on highways at night, but they all lived like you know a mile and a half that way. Yeah, they all knew each other, knew each other their whole lives. It was neighbor against neighbor, and it was it was a reign of terrorism. And that concludes. The Murder of Herbert Lee, entry 817.EX2307, certificate number 34239 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, it is garbage and get as far away from it as you can. Unless you're following Ken Jennings on Twitter, although you've really stop putting your best material there saving it for the show there was a time when you were whoo <laughs> firing both six shooters every day i think that was just more like a lower barrier to entry yeah. like hey i had a thought i'll just i'll just tell four hundred thousand people on twitter i've only recently started to make comments again and I and I shouldn't do it but it's it, all yeah, my dip comments your toe in the water why not what could go wrong <laughs> all my comments are on uh, are on sites that are talking about the war in Ukraine where I'm like, well, that seemed like a bad tech, you know, bad strategy for that tank commander. <laughs> Lol. If, only, if only they'd listen to you. And then I, then I quickly moonwalk out of there, but you can see my pathetic attempts to be friends with everybody again at John Roderick at Ken Jennings at omnibus project. You can email us at the omnibus project at gmail.com. You can hang out with other futurelings on Facebook and Reddit and Discord and TikTok and Twerk and uh, Squeak and Squonk. Uh, wherever futurelings are. Yeah. OnlyFans, probably. OnlyFans. Oh, I should start an Only Futurelings fans page. Yeah. How naked do you think I could get before my donations dropped off? Like, there'd be a certain amount of titillation, people putting money into my OnlyFans as I was like, I took off my scarf. Taking off your bucket hat. Took off my hat, took off my shoes. But there'd come a moment where people were like, that's enough. 
And I'm just wondering what that sweet Let's spot is. Let's find out is. for science. What is the Roderick point? The Roderick point. Everybody, and everyone has one. Sure. Sure. I mean, there are some people. Some people don't have one. That they get all the way naked and their money just keeps going up. But for me, I think there would be, there'd be a plateau. So the point, you know, that point starts it off the chart and then kind of it moves down as you age. Yeah. Well, but I mean, you know, I've got a dad bod. That's a popular thing. I'm a silver fox. Yeah. Keep telling yourself But that. still, there'd be a moment where it was like, nope, that's too far. Everyone should know what that number is. Yeah. 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 Uh, you can mail us things at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And most importantly, you can support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Your generous support via the Patreon portal helps us keep the show moving right along. Speaking of moving right along, if, if there are people out there who have not donated to the Patreon hoping that the show would come in shorter... This is your opportunity. This is under an hour. Ken said today that he was going to keep a timer going on himself and he was going to end this show before it was an hour long. And I said, I doubt it. I challenge you, sir. And look at us. I'm going to do it next week, too. It's a new me. I don't believe this. I don't believe you can keep it going. So if you have not donated 116 yet, is your normal normal limit. If you were if you have planned to join the Patreon but have only been held off by uh, the uh, extensive ramblings about the show that annoy you, today is your day. If you're here for the ramblings, please do not unsubscribe, however. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long this civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be on a final note. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.